I spoke with uh, Stuart Copeland last year, and uh, oh. it wasn't too long since he had seen you and Adrian doing this Remain in Light thing. He's like, man, you got to get to see this thing. He's like, it's absolutely incredible. So that's pretty high praise right there. I'm going to take it. <laughs> <laughs> I have the utmost respect for Stuart. And he was, uh, Adrian and he had played together. They were real old friends, but, you know, I did not, I had, we had done a couple of shows with the police and gone to dinner with them once, but I, he's yeah. not someone who I really know. I knew Andy Partridge, not Andy Partridge. Andy Summers. Andy Summers a little more, but, uh, but uh, yeah, it was, it was, they were great. And he was just a, a complete gentleman and uh, it was wonderful that he liked it. Well, I think that the idea of going out and performing a full album, it's always an interesting one because as you would know, like it has to be the right record. And I kind of wanted to start uh, by having you talk about digging back into this album, like song by song in the rehearsal process with Turquoise at the time, like how did it feel? Um, was there anything that felt like it would be a dead spot in the set? Like what sort of concerns did you have generally, if any? Well, we don't actually do every song on the record because we modeled it after the show in 1980, Talking Heads in Rome. That Rome thing. Okay. Yes. And we follow a lot of that, that, uh, not exactly the order, but that set list we do a lot of those songs that we've taken out a couple of them and yeah. we've added because um, we wanted to have uh, Adrian does a King Crimson song, Thela uh, Hun Gudji, I, I don't know if I pronounced that right. And yeah. I do this, my, my solo song, Rev It Up. Um, Turquoise already did the song Slippery People, which mm-hmm. though it's after Remain in Light, they do a great job of it. And uh, so we do that. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm excited that, like, as we move, if we continue this, which I think we will, what else are we going to add and what else are we going to do? You yeah. Know, uh, we played, we had a, it was really interesting. One of our last shows we played in Sarasota it was ostensibly a prog rock festival. Hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it would have been nice if we had some more King Crimson then for that audience. And yeah. Uh, we got the ultimate compliment is that we were, I was uh, like at a bar afterwards with Adrian and some of his fans who were prog rock fans. And they go, you did the ultimate. You got a prog rock audience to dance. And then someone said, artificial hips be damned. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good point. Yeah, it was so perfect anyway. So so anyway, we we don't we don't do listening wind and the overload and seen and not seen. Mm. And the reason we don't is because we were playing largely festivals. Yeah. Had it been, had it been a theater show, we might have done the entire album start to finish in its order. Yeah. But in a festival atmosphere, we felt that we would lose the audience doing mm. the slow those slower, moodier songs. What was the intrigue for you about going back to this this body of work that period of time? Well, I think that I would say this is true for Adrian is we first of all thought that there was something uniquely different and very valid about that first attempt at having a big band that we did with the with Remain in Light. And yeah. of course, Adrian's guitar playing being one of the thing that was like well, as unique as, you know, he is as unique as anybody in the world's ever played guitar and he 
add something so special. But there was also a, oh, I don't know, a looseness or a freshness to it that, um, you know, it couldn't help become a little more organized, a little more codified, a little more, you know, we started to have lights that helped focus people's attention with mm. with that being coming to its sort of, uh, you know, conclusion or the ultimate person that being stopped making sense, which is, you know, sometimes a lot of us were in the dark so that you could look at these uh, things that were being projected on the screen behind us. Whereas this was just a line of people, sort of like Sonny Ade's band. We were, we were, uh, you know, like an African band that's just on a narrow, on a, not a very deep stage that just goes from a really long time. And what's really weird, of course, is not getting way off from the people that are playing way over here because you're not hearing them when you're all the yeah. way over here. Yeah. And uh, it is still a challenge, particularly for me, because I I'm the only one who's not using earplugs. I mean, not earplugs, but ear, uh, in-the-ear monitor. In-ears, yeah. And so, you know, everyone else gets their mix dialed up, and I'm sort of relying on how much can I hear from the PA, the monitors that I have. And uh, there are some times that I'm going, like, I'm not hearing much of anything, but okay. As long as I can hear the, the singing and I can hear the snare drum and a few things, I can play my parts. I think that's one of the things I learned in Talking Heads was to be able to play a show in very, very uh, challenging acoustic uh, <laughs> uh, environment. Uh, we One of the things about the Modern Lovers is that our shows really vary depending on what the acoustics were, the room were. Yeah. And Jonathan and I would actually change what we played depending on how the acoustics were which was great for improvisation and really great on a great night and not so great on a night where you couldn't hear very well. Hmm. The talking heads, we wanted to be consistent and we were playing also show after show after show after show, which is modern lovers never toured with that sort of relentlessness that we did. And so it was like, let's get this so that we could, we can do it no matter what. Do you think that playing with Jonathan sets you up pretty well for eventually what you walk into working with talking heads? Because both Jonathan and David seem like really interesting personalities to like collaborate with. Well, I certainly think in that way it did. Uh, I think, I think, the, I think the modern lovers in many ways are, well, certainly one of, if not the beginning of what became punk music. I'm not saying that we were punk and this is something I've seen Iggy pop, like get kind of annoyed by because he's another progenitor we'll say of and but we i would say the, the velvet underground and the stooges and then particularly the modern lovers we were really stood as opposed to what was happening in music which which i thought was the over professionalization of it mm -hmm. we started having bands like yes and emerson lincoln palmer and what really did become prog rock but everyone seemed to have been they had spent 10 years in academy studying music Everything was very grandiose. The songs could be 15 minutes long. And, you know, there was something there was something majestic about that, but there was something that's like, I've kind of missed what rock and roll was when it began you yeah. know, with a three-minute uh, Eddie Cochran song. And so the Modern Lovers were very much about sentiments that were, like, challenging to people in the audience to sometimes to raise their anger. And also... Sometimes, but also short, sweet, and to the point. And I also think there was a philosophy that is like the 
even if you can't play your instruments particularly well, you can find a way to express what you need to express to get this, this, your emotions across in this punk song. So I think the modern lovers were the beginning of that. And I think the talking heads had, had some of that sensibility, all of the bands coming out of CBGBs of short, sweet, and this, we, we don't want to be anything about what I would call mannerist music that had grown out of, we'll say, the classic music. Yeah. Where it, it was all a little too much flourish and a little too much uh, about technique and, uh, I don't know, complication that didn't need mm. to be there. Yeah. And as far as Jonathan and David goes, uh I think it's an interesting thing as I think back in my career and it's really, it's interesting. It goes beyond Jonathan David. I think I also, as a producer was very often called upon to, to produce a band like the violent femmes where maybe some other people said like, I don't know, Gordon's an unusual guy or Brian and Gordon. Were what are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with them? And it's sort of yeah. like, well, let's send in Jerry. He's used to this kind of thing. <laughs> and, um, and I was, I, you know, it's because I, I take everybody, I don't, I don't have all this prejudgment about people. I, I try to take it in and say, what's, what's unique and what's wonderful about them. Um, I, you know, it's, it's not like I'm an idiot. I, I see what's sometimes what's cranky or what's difficult or what's, <laughs> um, what maybe have to be, uh, uh, um, how one needs to be fairly diplomatic to deal with something like that. But, you know, I've actually gone on and been involved with companies with sort of geniuses who started at scientific things and mm-hmm. helped them sometimes negotiate. I have a company right now about snake bites and the founder of that company is, uh, he's, he's really not at all like David or Jonathan, but he is again, a, lone genius to begin mm. with they yeah. come up with these ideas and now there's all these people helping him lots of other geniuses and brilliant brilliant people including the co-founder of moderna and you know things like this but when we started it was really two of us and he and he sort of was working out of his garage and but he needed help with dealing with the business of it because he could have shot himself in his foot uh very early on by either and so I, I helped him see the big picture, and I helped other people then also understand him. So, but I think that I, as a producer in particular, often did that. But I think in the modern lovers, sure. the talking heads, that I, I I had a sensitivity to the music that allowed me to interweave what I could do into what they were doing without trying to compete with it or try to uh, overcome it or do anything like that, but that like seamlessly just made it better. And uh, I think that's a talent that I have. And it's, 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 it's a different talent than a lot of other musicians. Absolutely. A lot of other musicians want to show that they can play guitar faster than anybody else. Mm -hmm. That they can, give me my chance and I'm going to play a 20 minute guitar solo or keyboard solo, or I can, I can play 15 parts at a time and sing this. It's, it's, but these tour de forces, and I was not about a tour de force. I was about sort of slipping in and doing just the right thing. With modern lovers. um, And really, I think this is the case for a lot of people, but you're just doing the work you have, you know, 
no idea like how revered the stuff that you're doing is going to become eventually. Um, I, I wondered what it meant because like I'm here in Cleveland and like the version of Roadrunner that Joan yes. Jett did, that was a big thing here. What did it mean to what did that mean for you when you heard like somebody like Joan Jett taking on your song like that? Well, it gave me a great deal of pleasure that it was still uh, uh, still sort of that she would still think of it as something she wanted to do and and uh, be influenced by it. I mean, the same thing was true of the Sex Pistols that he had recorded Roadrunner. And there's a new uh, film about them where yeah. when they have singers come in, they have them play, I think, No Fun and Roadrunner because if you're you're going to be a punk rocker you better you have to know those two songs yeah uh, and uh um and I, I i you know it 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 makes me very happy that we had that uh that enduring influence and it's funny you know we made the record in 1972 but because of uh sort of us kind of messing up what we we went out to try and actually make a better version those were demos that we did it didn't come out until 1976, and perhaps if it had come out in 1972, and we continued, we might have become a really big band at that time, or maybe it would have been too early. Yeah. And but when it came out in 1976, it sort of was a roadmap and set the stage for the, particularly the English punk scene, just were like, oh, I can't stand. You know, they were really standing against. I'm sick of the Rolling Stones. I'm sick of the Who. I'm sick of He's, you know, I'm really sick of uh, prog rock. I'm sick of this. I'm sick of that. Oh my God! Here's something that's refreshing, and I, I can relate to. Yeah. And you know, so maybe maybe life maybe it was you know a blessing. It certainly was a blessing because it's why uh, the Talking Heads knew I existed and why I was able to uh, be introduced to them and for me to join the group. By the time I heard the name Adrian Ballou, he was already Adrian Ballou. And as a liner notes nerd, when I first saw his name pop up, I mean, I knew I was about to hear some cool stuff. So I wondered, like, how much did you know about Adrian at the time that he came into the band? And what are kind of your initial memories of starting to collaborate with him? Well, we had first heard about him when we were working with Dave, with Eno, because Eno had seen him play with Frank Zappa and then introduced him to David Bowie. And so Eno had worked with him there. And so he told us about how amazing he was. And then I think we reached out to him. We were playing in Champaign-Urbana, and then he came to three shows we did around the Midwest. And eventually we asked him to just come and sit in on Psycho Killer. Yeah, cool. And then, we just, then we just remained sort of friends. And when we were doing Remain in Light, he was playing at the Mud Club. And I remember going down to the Mud Club uh, he remembers that that Brian and David came with me. Maybe they did. I, I my recollection is I went by ours because we were so under the gun. I remember just going down like you should come up to the studio and play on something. And he did. He came up and played. And we almost always took his first take, like the, that amazing solo on the on the uh, 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 the great curve is uh, a first take. Wow. And he. Uh, and there were no lyrics on the song at the time. And um, I think Eno said to him, he goes, well, just listen to the song. And when you think it's kind of ready for a guitar solo, play then. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. That's so very, you know. So that's what he did. 
And yeah. and then we then because I had gone back to Milwaukee, I had found this little studio. My father died suddenly, and I found a studio where I made Casual Gods. Yeah. And I met my wife there. And then after my mother passed away, um, I had a house there and I liked this studio. And then a couple other studios opened up. And there was a studio down in Lake Geneva that actually at that moment was the world's largest SSL. And had wow. and had for one for one single studio had more equipment in it, more and particularly more very expensive equipment in it than any studio in New York, London, or LA. It was, it had four tape machines for one studio, two Mitsubishis and two Studer 800s. It had two Pugasons and all of these AMS. And it was unbelievable. And of course, it was also at, at least half price or less of anything you would pay in those parts of the world. Oh, that's cool. So I started taking projects there or mixing projects there. I worked on the, the Bodines there and I worked on Semi Twang there, worked on uh, Walk on Water, the my, actually my last solo record there. Mm-hmm. And Adrian was living there because he had met the people who were managing it and owned it. And they had kind of enticed uh, uh, him and his manager at the time, who then became a, another engineer at the studio. Mm-hmm. So they moved to Lake Geneva, and so I'd be we just see each other hanging around and go out and have lunch or breakfast and stuff like that. And he then played on some more of my solo records, but we sort of you know continued having this friendship that lasts till today. That's awesome. And and song wise, um, as far as remaining light, what are kind of your memories of um, once in a lifetime coming together? Well, I think that I just uh, someone just asked me this. Uh, the way we were making this record was that. There was a, at that point, mixing boards had an A and a B switch, which would lock and turn on and off multiple faders. There was no automation at that time. So we ended up creating, because we were doing Remain in Light one track at a time, we had this idea of let's, let's do a record where we record the first time we ever play it. Because we had seen in our rehearsals, sometimes there was something about like a cassette we had made when we first played it. And the more we rehearsed it, in a way it got better, but in a way it lost some of the innocence that it mm. had there. So he goes, let's try to capture that. So we were re- ultimately trying to do that in Remain in Light. And so therefore it became this whole thing of uh, the album really largely is the A part and the B part, the A part, and the B part with new parts coming in because we, could manually turn off other parts or turn them on. And uh, there's an ambiguity in the beat in uh, in uh, the way Remain in Light is on, on, on uh, the way Once in a Lifetime is on Remain in Light because mm-hmm. Tina's opening bass line comes in on the upbeat of the one. Mm-hmm. And so if you turn it up and change some of the, the dynamics, if that's dominant, you suddenly put the one where her upbeat is, and you've suddenly shifted the whole song a half a beat. All the upbeats are downbeats, and all the downbeats are upbeats. So it was mixing, it was very complicated to get this kind of that sense of uneasiness and about what the beat was, but still understand where the beat was. And I also think, of course, the lyrics are amazingly uh, uh, vivid. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that, the, you know, I think that uh, the, the movie been Down and Out in Beverly Hills really caught, like, the uniqueness of how did I get into this situation? Yeah. And helped to actually propel that song into being such a, uh, I guess, a hit or certainly well-known. You talked about the process of making that record, but like still one of the things that's always been interesting to me about the band is that you guys always made records that were really intriguing to listen to and dissect piece by piece. And obviously, Eno was in the mix for three of those records, including Romanian Light. Um, it just seems like it would have been a really interesting process building up some of the soundscapes for these songs you mentioned seen and not seen earlier that's one i'll present as an example mm-hmm. like it's easy to imagine you guys spending a lot of time on some of this stuff like what did that process look like in reality like did how much did that happen where you guys really just went a long distance to finish off a certain song well i think that with eno we began with more songs and pills and food but eno's vision which we then adopted was that everything that happened in the control room was part of the composing process. Yeah. Nice. And that the, that the studio was an instrument to be played, not merely a device to record what was played in another room. And as we got more, as he got more comfortable with us, and we became more knowledgeable. And also David had done my life in the bush of ghosts with Eno yeah. Uh, just just prior. So there was this whole sense of that a sound that was being made. Sometimes it was like disconcerting as you would come in hmm. and you had played it a certain way and then you would hear it and, you know, had put a delay on it or done something to it and recorded it that way. And you go, wow, that's really different than what I was planning it to be. But I kind of like it. As I told this to a lot of people that uh, musicians they go like that would make me insane because I'd feel like who's who's fucking with my shit, <laughs> and but for we fortunately we had a trusting enough relationship with him. It's like okay, let's go for it. Let's just let's just let whatever happens happen. So that's what we did, and so that reached its apogee on Remain in Life. It's like he was putting things on, and then uh, you sometimes you would do it. Most of it was on the fly and working through things, but sometimes in very little pieces. Uh, the inter, the 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 uh, solo on "Born Under Punches," for instance, was using the sample and hold button on the Lexicon Prime Time. So you were That's cool, really, which would only hear where you could, as it was playing back, you could manipulate by changing the speed or doing some other things. And so it was recorded literally like bar by bar, and punch, you know. It was done like that, but like each one of those kind of sounds that would that happened were were done in a unique way. But it was a complete collaboration with Eno, um, and but I, as I said, we became partners in this. And I also think that because, and I also think that it uh, for me, it taught me great lessons of of what you could do as a producer. And so when I started yeah. a producer on my own. I took that attitude of the studio is is part of the whole process. And I also, I tried to uh, be a, the, the person who maybe guided the process, but I was always open to whatever the musicians were interested in experiments that they wanted to try. 
Last couple things here, um, you know, going back to this stuff, you know, as you said, this is modeled around that Rome show. Um, what has been your kind of favorite thing to perform that you've really unexpectedly, you know, enjoyed going back to? Because I can imagine that there hits a point where it's just like, I don't want to talk about Psycho Killer one more time, this and that, blah, blah, blah. But it's like in context of a show, I would imagine there are moments that are that end up well, being really special. But we begin the show with Psycho Killer. Yeah. And there was, like, I had this idea that we, we do an extended beginning of the dum, boom, 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 boom. And I'm going, okay, we're playing festivals. Yeah. So there's going to be people that are still trying to get to from the last show they watched to see us. So yep. let's stretch this out. But this is such an iconic bass part. People will hear it and go, shit, that's Psycho Killer. Yep. I got to go see that. Yep. And it's like, let's. so I saw it as a, a Pied Piper clarion call to, to bring the audience to the show. Yeah, that's a special moment because I know exactly what you're talking about. Like, I can remember being at Bonnaroo and hearing something and all of a sudden going, oh, my God, that's Al Green. And you just yeah. make your way to that stage as fast as possible. That's right. That's right. Um, one of the legendary sections of the Talking Heads career is, of course, the Stop Making Sense film. And there's a handful of films, I would say, that have influenced future musician, future musicians the way that one did. Um, so compared to like watching the film, what we see, if I was a fly on the wall for the period of time, the three shows when it's actually being captured, like what would I've experienced? What do you kind of remember most about that experience? Well, I think we did a good job. And, I, and this is really all Jonathan Demi is that. We 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 made no compromises in how we filmed it. Yeah, that means that there was like a railroad tracks and the seats taken out so that there was a dolly and this is a gigantic Panaflex thirty five millimeter cameras, and but we did three nights so that one could come down the left side, one down the middle, and one down the right side, so that we didn't take too many people out of the audience to accommodate the film crew and we then it, it created some sync issues at times which hmm. we we overcame as best we could as, you know it's not what you can do today with digital manipulation but um and i think that we had the right balance between a very uh lively and excited live audience but with enough space for the film crew and, a, and an absolutely uh, brilliant director of photography to, to capture what we were doing on stage. Well, Jerry, I want to let you run, man. Um, you know, you've mentioned your productions a number of times in passing as we've been going through this. And I can tell you, man, like a lot of your records are in my collection, whether it's, you know, Big Head Todd and the Monsters. I was listening to the Bogman record today, like, you know, all sorts of <laughs> stuff. Um, so when you when you talked about like how your band stuff influenced your ability to deal with various bands, like I know exactly what you're talking about. So um, but I'm excited for people to see this show at the Wiltern in September. Um, I think it's gonna be a lot of fun. And, you know, I'm glad that you and Adrian are doing this. So thank you for the time. You bet. Look forward. Uh, we look forward to the show. It's a pleasure talking to you. All right, man. Have a great one. Right. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye.